0: But I think
1: there's been this fear that exercise is somehow gonna be dangerous. Uh, and
0: it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, There's this thing called new normal. I, th- I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is gonna be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late.
1: Welcome to the REACH Podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH Podcast. I am just back from the American College of Sports Medicine's annual meeting uh, that was in Orlando, Florida this year. ACSM is a, is my favorite conference to go to, and this year especially was, was outstanding. And The amount of exercise oncology work that was on display, from presentations to posters to symposiums and conversations, uh, Katie Schmitz, our former president now, uh, deserves a lot of credit for getting so much content up there and visible to, to a much broader audience, so a huge thanks to her and thanks to all the, the people who presented. It's a lot of work to do that and get prepared for, and just catching up with all the cool people from all over the world who are doing really interesting work, tonne of conversations about how we can move the field forward and a lot of interviews lined up for for what we've got with with REACH. Um, before I get into today's episode, I also want to give a huge shout out to all the folks at St. Francis University uh, Masters in Exercise Oncology program. Uh, their director, Steve LaRusso, came to me uh, three years ago now or four years ago saying that he wanted to start this program and it was kind of partially ingest and partially serious and and what he's done in such a short space of time and developing a program a master's program developing all the curriculum teaching the students and bringing them forward uh through that field and giving them opportunities when they graduate they seem to be multiplying i mean when i when he first met steve he was there on his own maybe had one or two other students and this year they had i don't know 10 plus people so it's really cool to see Uh, What Steve has done with that program and see those students um, be so passionate in coming back to the conference every year and seeing them integrate themselves into the field. So really cool to see what you're doing. Huge shout out to all you lot that are going to have a big impact in our field moving forward. On to today's episode, uh, Keegan Randall is is a five-time Olympian and as of 2018, she is an Olympic gold medal medal winner um, in cross-country skiing keegan is a phenomenal athlete obviously but in a few short months after she won her gold medal uh, she was actually diagnosed with breast cancer so it's just really interesting experience of going from the highs of winning an olympic gold medal to a few months later having a diagnosis of, of cancer and going through all the treatments there and funny enough keegan actually spoke at acsm last year last week about her experiences and it was great to, to kind of give her the platform to talk to our audience about what she experienced, about how she used her athlete mindset to go through that experience and how she's still kind of moving forward as a, as a very strong uh, patient advocate or, or advocate for people with cancer going through treatment. So um, all in all, it was a really cool chat to, to talk to her about, about her experience as an Olympian, but also now that transition into her new kind of phase of her career and her life and her her direction moving forward so again thanks to everyone for your for your support if you can please do me a favor and jump onto itunes and leave me a quick review Um, it helps the the podcast get to a broader audience it helps us kind of build our profile and i'm looking to put it onto spotify as well so i can make it available to a broader audience but other than that as i said thanks again for all your your support and and listening consistently (laughs) despite me not being consistent other than that, sit back, enjoy the show, and I'll chat to you soon. So the first, I suppose, question I was going to ask you was, uh, for the, I was thinking of like, you know, you're a five time Olympian. What's that like? And then I look into your background, and you come from a whole family of them. So where is this line of Olympians coming from?
0: Well, my my grandfather was a university administrator, and he particularly got into being an in athletics uh dean of athletics and and involved in sports so my mom's side of the family has seven kids and my grandfather really pushed the kids to try lots of different sports and turns out there's some good genes there my uncle who's the oldest of the family went to the olympics in 1976 and then his younger sister my aunt betsy went in 1980 uh and then my mom was a pretty good collegiate skier herself and you know did university um and then we added my dad's side in which um, is a bit more fast twitch. Um, I had an uncle that almost made it to uh, the Green Bay Packers in American football, and uh, my dad ran track growing up. So I think it, for me it was a nice blend of kind of endurance, strength, and speed um, that ultimately it played out in cross-country skiing.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was a really cool environment to be in, though, to, to have that to look up to within your family and, and talk to them about their experiences. Um, or maybe even see, um, I don't know what the age gap was, or see some of them competing
0: uh, they both, my aunt and uncle both did their Olympics before I was born. So by the time I came along, I just got to wear their Olympic clothes and I got to hear their stories. And I vividly remember from five years old, deciding I was going to go to the Olympics too. It was just a matter of what sport, um, not a matter of if I was going to go. And I think just having that that confidence at five years old probably had a lot to do with just having that cl- proximity in my family.
1: What is the typical distance you're doing you know in a solo race for for cross country
0: well we are a unique sport in that we have multiple uh, distances and we also have two techniques so it's kind of like in swimming where you'll have someone who is maybe good at the uh, freestyle but they do a bit of backstroke uh, maybe a little breaststroke except we're doing it uh anywhere from a, a kilometer which can take two minutes on up to 30 kilometers where it'll take an hour and a half and most of the athletes in our sport actually do everything. You know, you tend to have one event maybe that you're better at than others, but you, you do everything. And so the race we won the gold medal in was a two-person team event where we were on a one-and-a-half-kilometer course that each of us raced around three times, and we'd alternate So we tagged each other in between our, our laps. That's a, a fun event because it's, it's a sprint. You're going all out for about three minutes. And then you tag your partner and you get three minutes to rest while they're going. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And we actually have a semifinal. And then you get an hour break. And then you get a final. So while it's called the sprint, it's definitely a a long race. And you have to have quite a bit of endurance. Um, I think it's one of the toughest races we do because it's multiple anaerobic efforts. But at the same time, it's also one of the most exciting.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because it seems like there's different components to it where those longer races, I'm sure there's an incredible amount of mental toughness that goes into in the middle of the wars, just and trying to get through it versus the the sprint is just all out, pushing your body as hard as you can.
0: Yeah, very, very different tactics between the two. Um, the, the long races, it's a lot about pacing. It is a lot about that mental toughness and just really um, – and that's why you have to put so many hours of training in to be able to – hold such a high speed over that long distance. Uh, the sprint event often comes down to a lot more tactics uh, where you have to know the right position. You have to know, you have to conserve speed so you can make the burst right when you need it. Um, but I really like ha- ha- you know having maybe a sprint race one day and then the next day you got to kind of reset and-, and switch to a different mode. It kind of constantly keeps things interesting.
1: So you had 15 years at the elite level of cross country skiing what with the exception of you know just that small gold medal at the end what was the difference between your first experience and your last experience at the olympic games
0: um well my first olympics in 2002 was really just a chance to gain experience and um i knew i still had a lot of years of training and experience ahead of me before i would be competitive so I got to be there. I was still, of course, doing all the things I could do to perform at my best, but I um, had the kind of lower expectations, you know, fast forward to 2018 and I knew it was my last games. I knew I was incapable of winning a medal, um, but I also knew that everything had to go right on one day and it was my last chance to leave it all out there. So I think the biggest difference was the expectation and and the pressure, um, but I People often ask me what was my favorite Olympics and it's really hard to pick one even though the gold medal in the last one was amazing. I still remember just being bright eyed in that first Olympics just so excited for the possibility that lay ahead getting to, to be there and wear my team uniform and meet all the other athletes and so every Olympics has been super special.
1: We talked a little bit about how the sport is is not as well funded as other sports. Um, how, particularly as, as young as you were, how difficult was that, or, or what challenges did you have trying to balance your training, trying to find coaches and sponsorships and all that stuff with, with regular life? Because, you know, ultimately you're an Olympian but not a full time athlete.
0: I think that has been one of the biggest challenges for skiers to be successful coming from the United States. Um, there, when I got into the sport, there was no path to follow and there was no guarantee that I wouldn't just spend years toiling away to make no money, to be frustrated with results. Uh, I, for me, it took a lot of optimism, I think, uh, and a lot of patience, um, and just kind of having this big dream out there of just, you know, deciding to try and go for it. And I just, I got creative. I realized, that uh, people like to come along on the journey with you. They like to kind of hear what it's like, you know, what you're going through day to day to tackle a big goal, like trying to win an Olympic medal in a sport where no one ever has. So kind of just sharing like the highs and the lows and what the process was. Um, people, people were willing to help contribute to my journey, but they also got a lot out of be, you know, being in- involved. And then I also was kind of a role model for being healthy and active. Um, you know, being a good person, pursuing big dreams. So I did a lot of work in the community uh, at first because I loved it, because I loved working with kids and inspiring them to be healthy and active. But because I was doing so much of this stuff out in the community, businesses started to kind of gravitate towards me and and invite me to come on board as as, as spokesperson. And so I kind of started to create the sponsorship portfolio in a really authentic way. And, And that was really fun because then these people, like I said, were on this journey with me. And as I got a little bit better, my results got a little bit better. I would, you know, get a little bit more attention, which then allowed me to go out and and recruit more sponsors. And, but it was a constant balance because I had, I was training super hard. I had to be spending all my time training and recovering and to then be spending time on the phone, going to meetings, uh, balancing the business side. Uh, It was a challenge, but I think because I was willing to be creative and not just say, OK, Gatorade, OK, Nike, you know, put your logo on me for millions of dollars because as a skier that was never going to happen. Um, but I found this really cool way to to provide value to the people that contributed to my journey.
1: It's so how much of your training is on the skis versus are you doing other stuff like running and doing, you know, strength and conditioning and things like that?
0: Yeah, that's another great thing about cross-country skiing is that it takes a lot of different types of training to all come together for the ultimate performance. So we do spend a lot of time on skis as as much as we can in the winter. In the summer, we would ski on glaciers in Alaska, um, sometimes head down to New Zealand where they are opposite seasons. Uh, But we also had these roller skis that were uh, kind of a shorter ski but had wheels on either side, and you could mimic the ski motion along the roads and the paths. The only trick with those is they don't have brakes so you had to be very strategic about where you were training because if you got going too fast and a car came out or a dog ran across the road or you hit a crack uh you know there wasn't much you could do about it so <clears throat> i had a few crashes lost a few lost a little skin out there um but for the most part it was a great training opportunity and and i loved it cuz a lot of so much of our training is just out covering ground on your own power you know whether you're roller skiing or skiing or running a lot of running in the mountains. I I did a bit of, of cycling uh, to strengthen my legs. I loved being in the weight room, kind of developing that full body strength, um, even some swimming and paddling here and there. So it kind of felt like you were always doing something different enough that it kept it really fresh. And I think that's why I could happily do it for 20 years.
1: 20 years is a ridiculous career. And obviously <laughs> we, we talk about this gold medal. I've watched that video a couple of times and I've gotten goosebumps every time because it wasn't. It wasn't a pull away. It was really, really tight, and you were at the finish line waiting for Jesse to get across.
0: Yeah, with a two-person team event, you know, we knew we each had an important job to job to perform, and my job was to keep us in medal contention. And we were definitely the underdogs in that race. Um, Sweden and Norway had these just powerful teams with some of the best women that have ever been in the sport, uh, much more accomplished than either Jesse or I. So for me to be able to stick with Mar Jurgen, a 15time Olympic medal winner, uh, and Charlotte Kaller from Sweden who also has multiple Olympic medals, uh, I was uh, happy to be able to tag off in medal contention and then it really just came down to that last 20 meters. And you know it was, it was pretty exciting at that point because we knew barring disaster we were going to get a medal and that was going to be the first ever Olympic medal for women's cross-country skiing. But then when Jesse found that extra gear and lunged at the line for 0.19 of a second and made that the gold medal, I mean, I just let out the biggest, most awkward screech you could imagine because I just, I couldn't believe it. And it was just such an overwhelming moment and so validating, so satisfying for all we'd been working for and all we knew was possible.
1: And the first ever, I suppose, women. To win a gold medal?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, very exciting. I mean, uh, we had one other men's uh, silver medal from 1976 that Bill Coke had won, but that, you know, is a totally different era. And women had, and through my, when I started my career, had never been even top 10 at the Olympics before. So to to come in and, and win that gold medal, um, and just to, already in a year since, to see the ripple effect it's had, all the little girls out there that are putting on these relay socks and running around going, I'm Keegan, I'm Jesse. You know, they're coming out in a world where they know that Olympic medals are possible. And it's so cool to know that all the work we put in to make that gold medal happen is going to contribute to the strength in the sport for years to come.
1: I was actually going to, that was my next question in, in what you think this gold medal has done for the profile of the sport um, and for women female athletes as well Um, because you've already said in in just a year that's gone by you've seen a lot more exposure how have you seen that transcend across the sport
0: well it was so exciting to finally get to showcase uh, how exciting our sport can be on national television uh, to the American audience which most probably don't even know what cross-country skiing is to be able to show that it's not just some skier disappearing off in the woods for hours but it's a very fast fun dynamic sport and Americans are good at it, which makes a case for for people actually tuning in and watching us go. So I think it's it's really done a lot for the awareness of the sport, uh, for generating kind of more fans as we go forward. And we're literally seeing, I mean, tremendous increases in participation all across the country. I mean, the the ski program that I got started in when I was young has, has seen a 60% increase in enrollment. And I think, you know, just people are excited about the sport. They're excited about what's possible. Um, and that's the best best result from this medal we could have ever hoped for.
1: And you personally are also on the International Olympic Committee. And one of the, one of the things that was fascinating to me as I was listening to one of your interviews was uh, how you were speaking about the support for women and uh, particularly those who uh, are thinking about or deciding between family or career, which is something literally as males we don't think about. I, like as you said, I was like, yeah. But that's a really interesting, you know, concept. There's things to discuss. So, talk about some of your your goals with being on this committee, and maybe particularly with with some of your goals for for females in the sport.
0: Well, it's it's a great time to be getting involved with the IOC because uh, they have a an I, women in sport commission that's been diligently work on working on um, in increasing female participation both in the games in athletics worldwide, but also at the more administrative level as well, getting more uh, IOC members, more leaders of federations. And so it's cool to come in at a time when that work is already in process and good progress has been made and be able to contribute my experience where, you know, it was a a unique situation. You know, at one point I felt like I was going to have to make a choice, either family or sport. And then as I thought about it more, I realized, well, no, I don't want to have to make an either or choice. I want to find a way to do both. And it took some creative thinking. It took some belief in myself, you know, it took going out there and, you know, getting people excited about the idea, but in the end it's worked. I mean, women have been having babies for thousands of years and have, you know, continued to come back stronger than ever. So it makes sense that as athletes, we can do that as well. And it's great to see the system become more and more supportive so that women feel free to be able to make that choice. Um, I think it's really good for our sport to keep our veteran athletes competing longer, um, blending uh, parenthood with their athletics. Um and 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 then that also to flow up to, again to to some of these administrative roles. So, you know, with the scope and influence of the IOC, I think we can make some big steps forward in terms of uh, uh making that a bit more of a normal situation, a supported situation. Um and then I hope it also just trickles down and, and girls then when they're you know in maybe in their teens and they're trying to decide do I stay involved in sport or not. Then they just see this really clear pathway of yeah I can do that and I can be supportive and I can be successful.
1: So when you say stay on longer, has the tradition been um, people will start a family and then generally kind of fall off and retire?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of athletes kind of see when they get to those childbearing years, or or that's kind of where their their minds at. They see if okay, well, I better re- retire from sport and start my family and move on to the next phase of my life. And I think. Part of that has been there been there haven't been that many role models and there hasn't been a clear path of how they would do it. You know, you're always worried, am I gonna lose my sponsors? Am I gonna lose my status on the team? You know, what's gonna happen to my body? And so the more we can show a, a path and say, okay, you know, like as teams and countries and federations, like let's be supportive of this because, you know, these teams have already invested all this money and time into an athlete that they know is performing at a high level. So it's better to let them take, you know, maybe a year off from racing, have a kid and come back when they're more of a known quantity than it is to start from zero from an 18 year old that you don't know how they're going to pan out. So I think it's uh, it's worthwhile to support our women athletes who have been involved in the sports. So they can keep going longer, finding ways, you know, whether it's the ability to bring your family on the road, um, you know, having some extra support system, because fin- it's financially challenging. If you're going to bring your family on the road while you're competing, um, I think that we were able to do it for a couple of years, but it wouldn't have been sustainable for too much longer. So I think we've got some work to do in that respect um, to really support our female athletes. Um, but again, I think role models are going to be huge. If we can show a couple of successful examples of how it's worked out, then I think we're going to have more women just deciding to stay involved in the sport. And that's good for everybody.
1: You've kind of, <laughs> you've highlighted a lot of really big highlights of your career. So you've You've won your Olympic gold medal, you've just been uh, nominated or, or put on this IOC, and then just a few months later you've a diagnosis of breast cancer. So talk about that, that switch from high and just living in that in that, you know, post race period to then having a diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I mean <laughs> It was already going to be kind of a crazy time in my life, given that I'd competed for 20 years, you know, hit such a high point right at the end, was retiring. Uh, my husband and I had just moved to, a, moved to Canada. So we just moved to a new country, a new town where we I was trying to start to figure out how I was going to blend my IOC role with, uh, you know, sharing my experience as an athlete and doing some of the other projects. And then I get this cancer diagnosis and it just, it was complete disbelief at first. Because when you win an Olympic gold medal, you feel invincible, you realize you're in the shape of your life. And you you think about all the things you do, right? You know, I, I was exercising, and I was eating right, and I was taking good care of my body. And you just you can't believe that, that this is happening. At the same time, uh I think as an athlete I'd become accustomed to facing a lot of setbacks. And so right away my athlete frame of mind kind of took over and it was like, all right, this is just the new challenge. You know, we've got to make a plan. We're gonna build a team. Uh I'm gonna get through this. And uh it's it's been a roller coaster of emotions for sure. Um and I just as angry and frustrated as I wanted to be about how unfair this felt, I also realized, you know, if this had happened to me a year earlier, I wouldn't have been able to compete at that last Olympics. You know, we wouldn't have been able to win the gold medal or or at least I wouldn't have gotten to play a role in that. Um, you know, I, we, we were hoping to expand upon our family um, and that's frustrating that we can't do that right now. But at the same time, we have a little boy who's almost three years old and he is incredible and we are so grateful for him. So again, using that athlete frame of mind of just, okay, there's a lot that I can't control and I could be frustrated about it, but I think I'm going to focus on what I can control and what's really good. Um, is going to motivate me to get through this
1: given that short period of time. Did you, did you notice anything in the months leading up to it? You know, at what point were you like, okay, something's not right here. And you know, was it after the eating Was it during leading up to?
0: Yeah. So now, now that we know, um, the state, the stage that the breast cancer was, I for sure had the cancer building in my body possibly for years leading into the into that Olympics and that gold medal. Um, but thankfully, I had no idea what was going on. It it really ha- happened to be a stroke of luck that I was getting ready for bed one night. Um, and I just happened to brush past my right breast and notice there was a hard spot. And I uh, got a good education growing up that if you are a woman and you notice something, you know, that's not right. Go at least go get it checked out. So while I was telling myself in my mind, this is, this is probably nothing. I mean, I I can't be, um, I knew I needed to go get, see somebody about it. So it took a couple of weeks before we really got the diagnosis figured out. Um, but I just, I, I think, uh, I'm lucky that I am an athlete that I know my body really well, so I could instantly pick on up on something that wasn't right. At the same time, it was like the size of a pea. I mean, and it was there and it was going to just keep building and building, but it was not affecting me in any systemic way. So I felt still felt amazing. And it was really hard to wrap my mind around when I started treatment that I was going to have to make myself feel worse before I would be better again, because I just I felt so good. And it was like, no, I don't want to make myself feel bad. Um, But I knew that was reality. So that's just the way we faced it.
1: So let's talk about your treatment then. So sit down with your doc, um, get the diagnosis, and then he starts to discuss your course of treatment. Uh, how soon after you got diagnosed did you start treatments and what did that look like?
0: Well, I got the official diagnosis on May 31st. Um, I was at a friend's wedding in Sweden, so I had to. Uh, uh, I didn't get to officially meet with the doctors until a couple of days later um, when I got home. I had the added challenge of the fact that we had just moved to Canada And I did not qualify for the healthcare here yet. So um, I had to rely on my U.S. health insurance, um, which thankfully the U.S. Olympic Committee um, supported me uh, to continue on that plan. And I needed to do my treatment in the U.S. So I was getting all the initial information from the Canadian doctors and the diagnostic tests. Meanwhile, trying to figure out where I was going to get treatment, how I was going to pay for it. And then knowing that we wanted to still have children again, uh, a big concern was the fertility, because once I started chemotherapy, which was going to be my first step, there was no guarantee I would hold on to my natural fertility. And so we had to quickly um, go through uh, some treatments to, tr- to try and preserve um, some embryos, so that once I get through the majority of my treatment, then we have that as kind of a backup plan later on to hopefully still um, have another child someday. So that that all had to happen really fast. Um I think because there were so many logistics and things to figure out, um, I initially was so focused on that that I didn't quite process the emotional side of it right away. Um, it, when I got home and, and kind of got back to my son jumped up on my lap, then it set into me a little bit what this all meant. Um, but I had a, a great support team, so so we got going. And I, I actually was really proactive, and I looked for doctors who would understand who I was as an athlete. Both, both the place I was coming from and also the activities that I wanted to get back to. Um, so I put together a medical team that I, that I felt really comfortable with, and um, I started treatment at the beginning of July is when I started chemotherapy. And we decided to do chemo up front so that we could you know, really see how effective it would be, and then surgery, and then radiation. So um, I'm kind of glad it worked out that way because chemo was definitely the hardest part. Um, and I always love to do the hardest thing first. So got through uh, six rounds of chemo, which lasted over 18 weeks and then, um, and then had surgery and then radio. And then by the time I got through radiation, I was really was, you know, feeling pretty excited about how, how much energy I had because I was getting further away from chemo. So, um, it's funny what, what felt like a mediocre day before now feels pretty amazing.
1: (laughs) what what was so you talk about chemo being the the, one of the most difficult parts was it as difficult as you expected it to be did you think it was going to be easier what was your the reality versus expectation there
0: it was really hard to have any expectation because this was something so different from anything else I, i had experienced before i had had you know, stress fractures in my foot. I had a, had had a blood clot in my leg that required hospitalization, but those are all things where there was a pretty clear path of, you know, you do A, B and C and you get better. And with chemo, you know, it's like, they tell you the hundred possible things that could be side effects, you know, and everybody reacts differently. And so you go into it going, you know, we just have to wait and see the, the nice thing about doing six rounds spread out every three weeks is that, you know generally, what you experience in the first round is what you're gonna be experiencing in the subsequent rounds. So once I got through that first one, um and I definitely had like some you know pretty like yucky feelings, probably on day four through seven, where I felt like I had the flu and I just my stomach wasn't right, and my energy was low and my body felt heavy. But by day eight or nine, I started to actually feel closer to normal again. And so really over the three weeks, by the second and third week, I was back to doing workouts and having pretty good energy and, you know, being able to eat fairly normally. And so when I got through that first three weeks, I went, okay, well, I know it's, it's going to get progressively harder, but as long as it doesn't get too much more extreme than this, then I can handle that. And I think it's like when you're an athlete and you're doing intervals, you know, if you have 10 intervals to do, you go to the first one. And because you got through one, you now have the confidence, okay, I can get through the next one and the next one. And uh, and so that's kind of how I approached it was just trying to take the good things from that first round and just know that I could get through it. And also kind of having these little checkpoints of every, every round I got through was every round I was getting closer to um, feeling better again.
1: How important was it to you to stay active throughout treatment?
0: Well, ironically, I had gotten involved with an organization called Active Against Cancer um, five years prior where i was competing in norway and there was a norwegian organization they asked me to come out and be a part of one of their events when they told me about what they do which which is you know really trying to promote physical activity as a part of your cancer treatment um, i totally agreed with it um, because i really feel like physical activity has been an important piece of so many things i've done outside of my sport just in terms of helping me stay positive and have energy and actually help my body heal and feel better so I, you know, put a lot of energy behind that organization, promoting it, you know, happy to, you know, support it with really having no personal connection to cancer myself. And this spring, right after I retired, um, their director called me and said that they wanted to honor me with an award. And I said, you know, wow, I'm, you know, I'm, this is an incredible honor. I would love to come support your organization. And then I had to call her back like a month later and say, well, you won't believe this, but my connection with you just got a lot deeper. I now have cancer myself and so I'm not only going to be out there talking about how important physical activity is for cancer treatment but now I'm going to have to live it and and I just I knew it was going to be important to to really make the commitment to be active through my treatment because when you go through all those doctor's appointments they're telling you all about you know the bad things that're going to happen and all these things they're not really talking to you about what you can do and so I just kind of made the commitment to To know that my expectations were going to have to change, I may not be able to do everything that I'm used to doing at the level I'm used to doing, but I'm going to try to get out and do something every day because I know that'll make me feel better.
1: Do you wish there was more uh, emphasis or resources for uh, exercise throughout uh, cancer treatments as opposed to maybe this fear or avoidance mentality?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the coolest things I found as I was heading, you know, getting ready to start chemotherapy. Was a physiology study done on a a triathlete uh, who had had breast cancer, and they tested her VO2 max uh, at the before her treatment started, after chemo, after surgery, after radiation, and and they were able to see that within six months of completing treatment, she was back to near pre-cancer levels of performance. And so as I saw that, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'm I'm gonna see a decline them going to come back up. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And I actually tried to set up a study on myself to add more data to that. It, unfortunately, the timing didn't work out. Um, but I think we could put out, you know, more information, of course, more kind of more stories about how different people have done it. Of course, everybody's cancer journey is different. And, uh, you know, some people end up much sicker than others. And so you can't do a one size fits all prescription. But I think we could talk about more about why it's important to kind of continue your level of activity, what what the benefits are and find ways to help people kind of motivate when they're in that position where oh, it would be much easier to lay on the couch right now. But, you know, maybe if I get out and just do a little something, it'll actually make me feel better. Cause I, you know, as an athlete, I naturally like kind of know how to do that. It still wasn't easy. Like there were times when I needed a push. Um, but I think if we found more ways to help people get out the door and experience the benefits Um, It would really, uh, I think, help the treatment be more effective and also help the way people deal with it be more effective.
1: It's interesting because a lot of the guides, you know, and even the research, I mean, you look at the 40 years of exercise ecology, the majority of it is in um, people who are previously, previously inactive or, you know, are kind of, you know, sedentary kind of light activity. Some are overweight, some face a lot of challenges. There's very little that's been done on athletes which means our resources then are directed at those people who are inactive and overweight, trying to get them moving. Whereas you come from this high-level athletic background and you're used to doing five, six days a week of intense training, you don't have as much information on how to modify your training as someone who is inactive and starting an exercise program would be. Because if I turned around and said to you, well, Keegan, really, you got to get 150 minutes per week. So I think there's a really strong need to develop resources that are aimed at athletes and who understand their bodies a lot better and also are more in tune with different training methodology and how to maybe monitor themselves going through treatment um, and like you said understanding the patterns of of fatigue and nausea that go along with treatment.
0: Yeah I think I think there you know unfortunately there will be a lot of athletes that will have to go through cancer Um, and I really felt like most of the resources out there just I couldn't relate to them. And so I had to kind of experiment on my own and ask a lot of questions. You know, I was asking my oncologist, you know, is there anything I shouldn't be doing? You know, where where are the parameters? Because for me it helps to kind of have some guidelines um, and there aren't any. So I think we could um, we could put some more information out there and really encourage people and in encouraging the more athletic people to go out and, and be active through their treatment I think that has a ripple effect and it also helps the people who aren't naturally active um, who want to get more healthy after during their treatment or after. Um, Cause it's like, you start to, if the normal becomes everybody's staying active and then we're learning more there, then I think that pulls people in. Whereas right now the normal is, Ooh, you know, don't do anything too much rest, you know? Um, and your body then is kind of finding two battles at once.
1: How did you find out yourself with, as you said, you didn't have a lot of information. So you're kind of figuring this out as you're going along. Uh, it looks like you figured it out pretty quickly on the low days to take it easy. How did you manage your training around um, the treatments?
0: Um, well, I, I took advantage of the days when I knew I would feel good. So coming into each chemo treatment, I knew I was kind of at my highest point. Uh, before I was going to be going down again. So I would ride my bike to my chemo treatment. I would stop at the gym along the way. I would do a workout. Um, You know, as I went through my chemo, it got progressively harder. Like I didn't feel quite as good at the start every time, but being able to go and like do something on the day where I knew I was going to be sitting in that infusion chair for several hours, it gave me the mental boost of, you know, knowing I got my workout done. Okay. Now I can sit in the chair and I can just relax Um, I think it gave my body all the good, you know, endorphins and things like that, that also probably helped as I was taking on board these, these, you know, scary drugs, um, you know, processing all of that. And then on days when I knew, okay, you know, it's dates four through seven, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm prepared not to feel well. So instead of, you know, having an expectation in my head that I need to go out and do an hour or push myself or do intervals, I just knew I needed to go out and move my body. And, uh, and I kind of always told myself that I would go out and I give it 10 minutes. If I made it 10 minutes and I still felt terrible, well, then that was a sign that I needed to rest and recover that day. But oftentimes, as long as I got out there for that first 10 minutes, then I realized, oh, I'm outside. I have this nice distractions. I'm actually feeling okay, and I would end up having a, a, a great time out there. Um, and so I think setting some of those rules for yourself and just kind of knowing what the goal is, and the goal is just to help yourself feel better. It's not to achieve a certain performance or, or goal um and but at the same time, knowing that that moving is good for you um will get you out the door.
1: I think that's a really important point in terms of particularly with the the doctor's perspective to you, so you know inactive people i mean you look at the whole field of behavior psychology, trying to get inactive people active and finding ways to remove barriers you have to understand how important being active to, is to someone who is active and an athlete and how important that is to you. And you know the dark hole you can go through when you get a leg break or you get an injury and you're out for six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. And that effect or the feeling of detraining is a nightmare as well. So it, it can't be the go-to is, oh, well, you're about to go through 18 weeks of treatment. Just chill out. 18 weeks, you know, there's aside from an ACL, you're not gonna be out that long. So I think the education and the conversation needs to be less around, it's going to be rough, avoid it at all costs, versus, look, you're going to have to make some modifications, especially when you get surgery. We're going to have some some issues there, and you're going to have some low days during chemo. But absolutely, we can find a way to keep you as active as uh, is safe for you and appropriate for where you're at.
0: Totally. And and the the other thing I really noticed is, On days when I didn't exercise, it was a lot harder to stay positive. You know, it really just affected my my mental state. And so just going out and staying active was also so important for the attitude that I approached my treatment with. I think being able to kind of have this like, okay, I'm going to focus on what I can do and I am making small improvements, um, all of that. And they've, studies have shown the mental link with how effective your treatment is. And so we kind of have to figure out like, how do we give you, keep giving you that dose of exercise, which then helps your mental state, which then helps the treatment be more effective.
1: What was fascinating to me was looking through your daily blogs and you now have a catalog that you can go back on and literally see the patterns in response to treatment, which was really interesting to to see not only your your mindset but how your physical health and even when you started to move into getting sores from from treatment it, it was I love that you documented everything and there was there was no hiding kind of some of the lower points but it now it's really interesting to go backwards a time and see. How you can you can see the fluctuations through those daily blogs?
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing when you're with yourself every day. You don't always notice the changes, and uh, I tend to be a pretty positive, optimistic person. So I think while I was acknowledging the tough days. I didn't realize actually how tough some of those days were until I went back and watched the video footage and realized like, oh my God, I look terrible. (laughs) And like, you know, my voice or whatever. Um, And it's amazing how even within like from one chemo cycle to the next, I would kind of forget what that day three or four felt like. So to go back and kind of look at that blog and go, okay, that was how it went last round. Okay, it's it's tough right now, I'm experiencing those same things, but hey, the next day was better, so I can look forward to tomorrow being better. And um, I got a lot of cool feedback from people that said watching those blogs was really helpful for them to understand what the process felt like because they were watching either a friend or a family member go through it and they wanted to help so badly, but they couldn't understand it. And so being able to kind of share what I was going through gave them an inside glimpse into kind of what it feels like to actually go through it. And um, I'm really glad I did it. It was my husband's suggestion um, to to do it. I wanted to, to be open about what I was going through, but the daily blog was also a great way for me to end each day and kind of reflect on how the day went, you know, to pull, You know what some of the challenges were what some of the positives were and um and i think ultimately i'm kind of happy to have this whole thing documented now
1: so with this experience now and you are you've gone through just 20 years at, at at the top level how do you identify do you identify as keegan the athlete do you identify as you know i'm someone with breast cancer what you know when you're going out to the world you know how do you feel or what does that look like
0: I like to, I like to look, think of myself as a champion. And to me, a champion has not always been the, the person who wins the race, but the person who, uh, you know, is not afraid to take on a big challenge, you know, takes something daunting and breaks it down until they can work on it piece by piece. Um, you know, someone who is open about, you know, bringing others in and, and, and kind of working on these big goals together. Um, And so as I transition out of sport where being a champion was so defined by results, now I get to kind of work on what being a champion means in in all these different facets of my life. Um, And, and I really love kind of sharing what I've learned as an athlete, um, as a, you know, a parent, um, how I built my way back into sport and now how I've dealt with cancer as a way to kind of show people that, you know, find your inner champion, find that, you know, don't be afraid to take on something big, you know, break it down into something, get your team and ultimately share it because then that's, that gives you meaning to what you're doing and, and kind of pushes you forward. So um, I, him, am, am kind of learning as I go, but I'm excited to kind of just kind of build upon all these experiences I have and kind of keep, keep being a role model and, and keep inspiring others. And um. It's, it, there are so many great opportunities now. It's, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, and it's hard to kind of deviate my, my energy between all these different things. But um, yeah, that's, if I had to define myself kind of in something now, it's, it's kind of the champion for, for all these causes.
1: And you can really feel that passion coming through as you're talking, you know, bringing your Olympic experience and your love of, of training and activity, and now your experience of going through um, a diagnosis and the treatment and all this coming together. So what does that look like moving forward for you? And what are you really trying to push for um, in the next few years?
0: Well, right now I've uh, got an ambitious schedule set up uh, that includes a lot of travel. And I'm really kind of bouncing around between all these different dimensions of my life. So I've, I've already started to get some cool opportunities to do some motivational speaking, sharing my story, uh, you know, encouraging others. I am getting to continue to be kind of an ambassador for some of the companies that supported me through my Olympic journey. Um, I'm doing my IOC work, which also has some some responsibilities with the U.S. Olympic Committee. So kind of working on, uh, you know, Olympic things. Um, I lead this girls organization called Fast and Female, which is trying to encourage girls to stay in sports for life. And so I just organized an event we did with 100 girls a few days ago. Um, we've got another one uh, coming up in another few weeks. So I'm doing that. Um, I'm trying to help bring some major U.S. ski races uh, to the U.S. We've got a first, our first World Cup uh, happening in Minneapolis next year. First time the World Cup comes back to the U.S. since 2001. Um, so wearing many hats these days, I feel like I've got a lot of balls in the air and I'm just kind of trying to keep them all up there and uh, and really just appreciate that I have control again, that I, that I know what my energy is kind of going to be day to day and I can travel and I'm still doing t- fitting treatment in between. Um, and uh, the crazy thing about this cancer is, you know, it's, it's not something like, okay, I worked hard and it's done. And it's behind me. It's, it's something that's always going to kind of be there. Um, but I am choosing to be optimistic and, and kind of go forward. And I uh, feel like, yeah, this, this reservoir that had been building up while I was doing treatment now the floodgates are open. So here we go.
1: So what you, you mentioned you still have a little bit of treatment left. What does that look like in the, in the months
0: and years coming? Um, well, I'm still getting a, one of the targeted drugs, um, Herceptin, as an infusion every three weeks for another four months. So I'll be going in kind of, you know, once every three weeks for that. Um, I'm also now on uh, kind of some anti-hormone medication to uh, help reduce the estrogen levels in my body. So that if there are any errant cells out uh, out there that we don't know about hopefully we'll keep those from getting kind of kick again so that's going to be the next five years um i'm hopeful that maybe in a year or two i could take a break from that treatment to try and have another baby um we've got one little embryo hanging out in seattle in storage and uh, as a backup and then you know we still don't know whether my natural fertility has been affected um so we got that and but thankfully all of all of that treatment now um, is really pretty mild. Like I don't really notice outside of the hot flashes I get every day, um, a, a big difference. So I feel like I'm able to get back out and, and kind of do everything again. I I was really excited for radiation to end because I felt like, okay, radiation ends and I can go out and so I can start doing everything again. And there's been a little bit of a lingering effect. Like I realized I don't quite have the energy reserves that I had. Um, but I think that's just going to continue to get better and better. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that it's been A tough eight months, but my hair's growing back, and I feel pretty good again. And you know, and hopefully in five years, I've mostly had this behind me.
1: And we're just going to to casually brush past the fact that you just came 12th in a 50k race.
0: I did. I mean, the, the benefit of having skied for 20 years is there's quite a big training base that just doesn't go away overnight. So I wanted to jump in this 50K ski race because, um, one, it's it's one of the events I uh, haven't have been able to do when I've been off competing in Europe. So I wanted to come see it and experience it. Um, I knew racing 50K was actually going to be a, a pretty good challenge for me. Um, and I, I thought it was a great way to kind of prove to myself that like I've made it through the hardest part of treatment. You know, I'm still Keek the athlete. I can still do this. I can get out and appreciate every single K out there. And it was challenging for sure. Um, I have a new respect for that distance. And of course my sport kind of in general now, but um, it was very cool to be able to get out and do that. And, and then I jumped in some sprint races in China last week. Um, That was totally wild. Uh, Just the chance to go over there and get people excited about the sport leading into the 22 Olympics.
1: So it seems like it's really important for you to have these races coming up and have something to train for to keep yourself in that mindset.
0: Yeah, I just, I love having goals to look forward to. You know, it gives me some, a reason to get out the door. It gives me a measuring stick um, to progress. Um, And I find uh, when I, when I retired last spring, um, before I found out about the breast cancer, I was kind of like at first excited to go out and be able to do whatever I wanted. And then I get out there and I'd be like, well, what should I do? Should I go fast? Should I go slow? Should I bike? Should I run? And realizing like, I actually like having just kind of a little bit of a, of a path and it, it can be a different path than what I did as an athlete, you know, as a skier. Um, and I'm trying to look for some events now that challenge me in new ways, but I really like having that kind of distant goal, you know, and I work up to it. I feel myself getting a little bit stronger. Um, and then ultimately it all builds up. You do the race. And then, like I said, you get to enjoy that, that blissful feeling afterwards.
1: You've got, you've got an incredible story um, and it's been great for me to listen to, to both your experience as an Olympian and as someone who's gone through treatment and such a passionate advocate for um, exercise during it because I think what the message that comes out when people aren't aware of, of, of cancer treatments is that it's always going to be horrible and you through your presence online and your blogs have done a really great job of demonstrating how many of those days could be really good days and how important activity has been to you. And and I really appreciate that because we need uh, more champions like you uh, in this space. So I appreciate your story. Where can people uh, keep in touch with you and and find out what you're up to?
0: Well, I picked up the nickname Keek Animal when I was in high school. And so on social media, I'm Keek Animal on Twitter, Keek Animal on Instagram. I would say Instagram is my uh, social media of choice. So that's where things get updated most often. Uh, Keegan Randall on Facebook. Uh, Keegan.com is a great, you know, kind of central place to find all that info. You can see the video blogs there. You can kind of see the different sides uh, uh, kind of of my, my Keegan brand, I guess you could say. Um, and we have a really cool project that actually my husband helped me create kind of out of my cancer experience. And that is we have a Keegan store where we have these, uh, it's going to be okay products. We uh, I started wearing these brightly colored running shoes to my doctor's appointments and we, figured, we decided we would come out with some happy socks to give other people that same kind of like reminder of like okay you're going through something tough but it's going to be okay. So we've got some really fun socks, we've got some headbands and some neck, neck wraps on the site there, super easy to order and we donate two dollars from everything we sell um, every item to Active Against Cancer. So kind of pushing that our mission forward to uh, to keep encouraging people to stay active through whatever challenge they're going through.